Perfect. So I'd like to <clears throat> welcome everyone attending to the Voice DAO Sustainable Finance Summit. So this has been kind of a long, a long work in progress, and we're now ready to kind of start the start the summit, which we're very excited about. So this is being co-hosted by Voice at Cornell, Voice at Cambridge, and Voice at NYU. And I'd like to introduce Diego as the, the keynote speaker. So Diego was a co-founder of VoiceDAO. He's also an impact web three entrepreneur and an ex-Wall Street analyst and portfolio manager. So thank you for coming, Diego, and I'd like you to take it away. Hey, thanks, Ben. Um, and I want to thank, uh, like Ben said, the Cornell, uh, NYU, and Cambridge chapters uh, for putting this summit on. It's just amazing the group of speakers that we have uh, lined up for this week uh, from large asset managers, consulting firms. Uh, we have an ex-Fed president, uh, Kansas City Fed president coming in. I'll be discussing public finance for the green transition with them. Uh, we have a blockchain day coming up. Uh, it's, it's really going to be a tour through sustainable finance and how much of an impact sustainable finance as a function in society can make on uh, creating a livable world. So um, you may hear some background music as uh, happens with the digital nomad existence. Uh, we had lost power today. We had to uh, relocate to a Starbucks. So hopefully it's not too much of a distraction. Um, and uh, so as Ben said, I've had career in finance. Um, I've taught finance at university at the MBA level in undergrad, security analysis. Um, I've managed uh, socially responsible portfolios, been, been a portfolio manager, a Wall Street analyst, and a Wall Street uh, research director as well, um, and, a, and a strategy consultant. And, and so I'm, I'm well acquainted with um, sustainable finance and its, and its role. And so what I'm going to talk about basically is um, what we can expect from it or what we should expect from it. And, and when I say we, I really mean um, people who have an interest in creating a livable world, which is uh, which I'm going to talk about in a second. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to really talk a lot about what perspective we should, what, what's the prism by which we should view this discipline and, and its impact. And the reason why um, sustainable is, is a little bit uh, more opaque on this slide um, is on purpose because it's not it's not very clear um, you know what its role is going to be and whether and how impactful it can be and and I think that's the purpose of this week is to really uh, try to ask questions uh, the panelists um, ask questions of the people who are in the finance function to try to answer this question and make this clear is it really um, sustainable finance and and what is what can we expect from it so that's what I'll be discussing today um, so um, I'd like to start with, you know, what, what did we learn from 2021, like recent history, um, and, and how does it pertain to this question of sustainable finance? So we had another year of COVID. For those of you in the U.S., um, we had this uh, piece of legislation called the Build Back Better Plan, which ha has been passed, may not pass, and has a lot of climate-related spending in it. Um, we had uh, a COP26, which is a really important COP, which is the international process that, that we engage in for all countries to try to agree on climate action. Um, and we came out of COP26 with, when you tallied up all of the commitments of countries to reduce their carbon emissions and modeled that, um, it was about 2.4 degrees Celsius of warming. And as, as all of you probably know, 1.5 degrees is the limit uh, to which scientists believe above that we cause irreversible um, alteration to our climate. And so COP26, um, you know, it's, it could be debated, but in my opinion, was, was not a successful COP um, because the 26 actually refers to the number of COPs we've had. 
And, um, and so we've had 26 of them. And after 26 COPs, we still have 24. So it's 26 years worth of conferences. We're still at 2.4 degrees of warming. And that's if, if countries all make good on their commitments, some of which are very far in the future. Um, and so Build Back Better is an example of uh, trying to pass legislation, not, not quite succeeding. Um, and I think COVID is, is um, a, a good indication of how society mobilizes and organizes itself to face a threat. And, um, and we could, I think we could all probably agree that, that with, we did that as a society, a global society with mixed success. Um, and so all of this pertains to the movie Don't Look Up, which I really enjoyed, um, which uh, is about a comet threatening to strike the earth and, um, and about society's um, coordination and attempt to agree on what to do about that threat. So I think all, all of these are basically the same thing, which is that society gets threatened by something and we all try to like band together in the best way we can to try to react to that threat, and particularly people in authority, people with power, because they're the ones that have their hands on the levers that can actually do something to, uh, to do something about the threat. So in the movie, Don't Look Up, spoiler alert, um, the comet does hit the earth because society can't quite get its act together. And, uh, and, and for various reasons, so I recommend you watching that. So we learned that that's, that's uh, a, a probable thing to occur and so sustainable finance um, is, is, is part of the levers that we pull to, um, to meet the threats that we have. So you can, you can start to think of the relevance of sustainable finance or finance in general to, to all of these things. Um, and so I'm gonna, what I'm gonna do is take you through a series of questions that I, that I hope create some perspective for the whole week that you can keep in mind as you listen to um, the different speakers and as panelists uh, raise questions themselves. So one, the first question I like to ask is, um, is it acceptable for your future world to be unlivable, right? And that's a question that everyone has to answer for themselves. And so what, um, what I see is that young people want a future livable world, stands to reason, right? Who wants to live in an unlivable world? Um, I don't have to worry about that too much. Uh, the world in, in many respects is not gonna become unlivable for me uh, in my lifetime. Um, sad to say it won't be around, uh, it, you know, 50, 50 years in the future. Um, but there is a time frame of kind of 30 to 50 years in which we, we face a lot of threats. And so young people want to want to live in a livable world. They don't want green, a greenwashed world, right? They want an actual livable world. Um, and so solving for that, I propose to you, is the job of our dominant institutions, not just, uh, uh, not just some dominant institutions, um, but all of them. Right, so if you are if you are a decision maker in a dominant institution, society supports that institution, and so it's not just your job to make money or or, or to uh, to pass legislation or whatever. It's not a narrow definition because if the people who are in charge of dominant institutions don't uh, react to this these threats, then who will? Right, that that's what it means to be a dominant institution, and that was the lesson of Don't Look Up is that we look to the dominant institutions, they failed. And so therefore we got hit by comment, right? So there's no escaping this responsibility. This is my contention, this is my opinion. If you are a leader, if you're a CEO, if you're a president, if you're a Senator, if, you're, if you have been given the levers of power such that you are at the helm uh, to mix metaphors of a dominant institution, then if you don't do it, chances are no one else is gonna be able to do it. And that is an awesome responsibility and that is your job, right? So, um, 
So what are some of these threats that I'm talking about? I'm talking about rising sea levels, um, an altered climate which causes drought, um, floods, heat, uh, islands, uh, excess of heat, uh, cold. And so that the altering of the climate really begins to have an impact on the livability for um, uh, people in places, certain people in certain places, right? Um, there's a biodiversity collapse, which, which threatens humans in all kinds of ways that are even hard to, for us to understand, like what happens if we have no bees and we have no pollinators. Um, new pathogens, as we saw in 2020 and 2021, is a really important problem uh, that we have to face in the future. Um, soil depletion, you know, we've been intensively uh, growing plants since the Green Revolution back in the 60s and 70s. We don't really understand how much longer we can continue to do that, applying so much fertilizer to the soil and so forth. And uh, so that can cause big problems. Ocean acidification, ocean plastics, the accumulation of microplastics in our bodies and the bodies of, uh, of uh, animal life in the ocean. So these are all environmental uh, threats to the livability of our planet that we have going forward. And then we have social uh, livability threats. If you're uh, subject to racism and other types of bias, um, your life is not as livable as it should be and as other people's are. Um, inequality and colonization in the case of uh, living in the global south. And inequality basically means differential access to resources. So you don't get to have access to um, things like healthcare or housing um, or financial services like other people have. Um, and, um, and, and so that can create societal problems as well. Not, not only your livability, but the livability of society as, as the fabric of it starts to tear. Um, addiction to mental health is a huge issue. Animal welfare is a huge issue. So these are all um, related um, threats that we have. It's not, these are not reductionist threats. It's not like one single thing, like we can really separate these things. They're all related to each other. And so we face this kind of like systemic threat. Um, and the difference between now and other times in the past is in the other times in the past, we've, we've had certain threats. But the, the accumulation of these threats and the ability for them to reinforce uh, each other into tipping points is something that is relatively new. And so this generation of people in power, this generation of people who are is at the helm of our dominant institutions has a, has a different responsibility, set of responsibility from those in the past, right? It's, it's like I can say with honesty, it's never been like this. If you are a CEO of a large financial institution, the set of responsibilities that you have has never particularly been this set. It's different this time. And, and so what we expect a society out of, out of you is a different, uh, a different kind of response than you might've had in the past. So, uh, so back to the first question, is it acceptable for your future world to be unlivable means? How do you want these things to manifest or not manifest themselves in the future. And, and, there, and also, how do you want to hold your dominant institutions accountable for that? So we're going to get into that. So question number two, why is finance so important to creating a livable world? It would seem like two completely different spheres. Finance is about making money and accumulating wealth and capital. And creating a livable world is about you know, all of these different kinds of threats. So do the two really have something in common? Um, and that, that's a really critical question. And so I, I would say to you, as a you know, professor of finance, um, what I was teaching people in corporate finance and financial institutions and security analysis all had to do with the same thing. Finance is about how do we direct capital in society so that we can build assets, productive assets. 
right? And and the whole the whole discipline is around that questioning of uh, directing the, the accumulated savings of people, which we call capital, to productive uses, right? And so the, the, the measure of that is usually, do we make money in those productive uses, right? So the measure of the productivity of those uses of how worthwhile those uses are is, did we make money in them? And I feel very comfortable with that. Like I was a Wall Street analyst and, and, and again, a professor. And so I've taught that over and over and over again, right? So, so we know that's what finance is about. How does it relate to creating a livable world? And the reason, so I put this in big, big type, right? To create a livable world, we must replace assets. We must shift assets on a massive scale quickly. Okay, so I'm going to say, say that again. Finance is about directing capital to build assets in society. To, to create a livable world, to avoid these things, we must replace our asset base. We must do it on a massive scale, and we must do it very, very quickly. Okay. And uh, concretely, what we need less of is the things on the left. We need less fossil fuels because that result in carbon emissions. We need in less industrial farms because they ca cause intensive water use and soil depletion. We, we need less mining because uh, the materials extraction causes all kinds of problems, including biodiversity loss, plastics, which accumulate in bodies in the oceans and on land, overfishing, less one-day shipping. Why? Because one day shipping, the speed of our economy and the intensity with which we do things is, has a direct impact on the product life cycles and how quickly we're trying to make things and get them somewhere. Then the intensity of that has a direct impact on our planet. Um, unrepairable technology, fast fashion. These are all things that you're probably familiar with. But what it gets us into is that we need less intensity and speed in our product life cycles. Um, and, and some of these other things. And what we need more of is renewable energy, reusables, regenerative agriculture, where we don't waste the soil, but we replenish it over time um, and, and have less pesticides, things like that. Uh, more inclusivity in our social arrangements, much more equitable social arrangements, because we saw the threats from the social side that you see here. Um, fair labor, more reusable, so we don't uh, have single-use plastics and things like that. Retrofitting of our uh, of our housing uh, and, and uh, base so that we consume less energy, more affordable housing. So our economy has these assets on the left, and we're trying to shift them uh, the, the assets so that there are more of the assets that produce on what's on the right. And, and again, this is a this is a really, really big replacement. Like in history, we've had the industrial revolution, we've had the information revolution. We're talking about a similar kind of shift here, but probably in a quicker amount of time because the time frame with which we were talking about these threats is in the time frame of, of between 20 to 50 years if not sooner, because for some people, these threats are, are, are uh, if you're in a marginalized community, if you're being marginalized, you face these threats today. This is not a question of the future. This is a problem of the present. Um, Amazon warehouses almost universally are built near marginalized communities, causing pollution, leading to things like uh, like asthma. Um, and so so this is not a future threat if, uh, if you're in some of these groups. So the time frame, is, let me amend what I said before, is between zero and 50 years not 20 and 50 years, because they're being felt today. So um, so we need to, to make this transition very, very quickly. And so let's call this a transition. 
right? We're talking about making the transition to uh, create the kind of asset base that will produce a livable world. Um, and so the next question I would ask is, um, can, or let's scratch that out, will government fund the transition or must financial institutions fund it, right? The reason why this difference between can and will is, is, is important is because we can theoretically say that governments can do it. And we could even theoretically say that they are responsible for doing it. And we can say all day long that they should do it. But that's different than the question of will they do it? Right? We must ask ourselves, will they do it? Because if they won't, then there's an extra amount of burden that falls on financial institutions. It's not like the burden goes away. Oh, well, government's not doing it. And so we're not responsible. Because again, the, the, what the, um, the presumption I'm making, the assumption that I'm making is that back to the beginning, our dominant institutions are the only ones with their hands on the levers to make this happen. And so if the government levers are not working and that falls, extra burden falls on our other dominant institutions who may be more nimble and may be more able to agree on stuff to do things. And this is the opposite of, of how sometimes this is thought of, which is that if government does it, then it's just not gonna happen. Well, again, if you're the CEO and you're at the helm of a very large institution, uh, financial institution, I don't know that you have the luxury of being able to say that. Because again, you've been given those levers of power and that, and that dominance uh, on, on a global scale. And so this question becomes, you know, what can we expect out of uh, these pictures just to kind of describe them if you don't know that um, this is the uh, Federal Reserve, uh, obviously the US Capitol where uh, a US budget gets allocated, Parliament for the UK, uh, sovereign Wealth Fund of Norway, which manages a lot of assets. So in many cases, government, yes, of course, we, we can hope that they are involved. Uh, Diego, I think you've muted yourself accidentally there. I think you've muted yourself accidentally, Diego. Sorry about that. Thanks for telling me, uh, Ben. Um, I was just saying that uh, I'll, I'll be discussing this with Thomas Honing, uh, what role public finance uh, will play in, create, in funding the transition. But we know that there's trillions of dollars that are being managed by venture capital funds, by, uh, by large asset managers, uh, by large banks, and they're being channeled all over the world. And so the question is, how can we channel those trillions of dollars or how will they channel those trillions of dollars into funding this great transition? And I think that's a very, very fair question. Uh, to be asking. Um, and so uh, the next question is, if financial institutions are going to participate in this, um, are they going to fund the transition using their current approach, which is called an ESG or, or environmental, social, and governance factors in allocation of financing, right? And, and so, so this is the main consensus approach uh, that the financial sector has taken to solving this problem. So back to the very beginning, to the extent that they CEOs of these companies say, yes, you're right, this is our job. We are dominant institutions, we must do something about this. We have adopted a, an approach that is called taking ESG factors into account um, in financial decision-making. So will they fund the transition that way is a fair question to ask, because if they don't fund it that way, then we will not be able to replace assets on a massive scale quickly, we will not be able to do less of what's on the left-hand side and more of what's on the right-hand side. So what ESG is all about is these dominant institutions basically saying, we will take 
environmental, social, and governance factors into account when measuring risk. So this is a really important nuance. If you're used to finance, then, then finance speaks a lot about um, managing risk, the risk of potentially losing money from an investment. And right now, the paradigm of ESG is finance's way of saying that if a company doesn't manage its environmental and social factors, let's take those as, as examples, if it has like a massive oil spill, that's a risk that's gonna come back and bite the share price, right? And so the way that the financial system today thinks about this problem is as, as from a risk standpoint, we have a risk of climate change affecting us in monetary terms. Um, we have a risk of biodiversity loss affecting us monet in monetary terms. But um, so there are, there are all kinds of issues with that approach and I'm not, gonna, um, I'm not gonna go through them out here because my purpose today is just to raise this question, which is to not assume that this is going to work, but to ask, what is it good for? How is it structured? And where is it going to be leading us? And is it going to lead us into a livable world? Is it, is it going to lead us to financing this transition so that we replace assets on a massive scale very quickly? So the question is not whether ESG is a good thing. Um, ESG can be a good thing. ESG might be making progress for us as a society. But the way I'm framing this today for the financial system is not, is it good? Are you doing good? It's not, do you have good intentions and, and are you trying to play a responsible role in society? It's a, again, if we are going to achieve this livable world, our dominant institutions have to play a major role in getting us there. Um, and the question is, is this paradigm going to get us there? And so one of the things I'd mentioned to you is that um, if you are in the financial system today, that's not necessarily how you think about things. So there's this different perspective. On the one side, uh, you can think of it as on one pole, the perspective is we're making progress. And on the other pole, the question is, um, which is the question of don't look up, um, is, is the comet going to hit us or not? Right? And these are two very, very different perspectives with which to be making decisions about allocating resources. And, and so that's the question in the financial industry. And that's why this is such an important question is, is ESG the right paradigm? Is it the right perspective uh, to get us to where we need to be? Um, so, uh, so, I, so I think that the panelists and the moderators are going to be asking uh, asset managers, and look, this is not, um, this is not a, uh, a, a meant to be kind of like an attack or, or, um, or any kind of like a, um, you know, not appreciating what these people are doing when they're in the ESG world, when the financial systems trying to make progress, right? They're operating under constraints. I think we need to be empathetic with them. Uh, I personally am empathetic with them because I've been where they are. And so when you're charged with making profits and you're charged with this awesome responsibility of creating a livable world, it's a difficult situation to be put in. And so I, I always want to uh, come with empathy towards those people and have a discussion with them to say like, okay, look, this is where we need to go. If we're not gonna get there, then what needs to be done about it? And I think that empathetic discussion is what uh, Boys Dow is all about and what you can expect uh, from our pan panelists and moderators uh, during the course of the week. Um, but we do wanna get to an answer because this is an important question. So the next question then is, um, what will you do? And by you, I mean the people, uh, the attendees 
most of whom are going to be uh, students in Shenzhen during this conference. What will you do if they can't fund the transition? So if you want to live in a, let's go through the questions one more time. You, if you want to live in a liberal world, if it's not acceptable to be without that, um, if you see how, how important finance is to doing that, because we need to replace assets on a massive scale very quickly. Um, and if government won't necessarily fund the transitions and financial institutions must step in because that's an awesome responsibility that they have. And if ESG is not quite the paradigm to get us there, then what will you do? Because you want to create a livable world. And I think this is a question for every attendee every panelist uh, in, in this conference is like, this is, this is uh, their responsibility to do something about, but also I think um, your uh, alignment with your agency and your goals of wanting to be in, in a future livable world to ask yourself as to what you wanna do about that. Um, and sorry, this this one. And so at Boys Dow, uh, part of what we're doing is using technology um, the latest technology, which is blockchain technology to uh, help people coordinate to influence the people that have the levers of power. So we're creating a decentralized self-governing community that's gonna be uh, self-governed based on, on apps uh, where you can vote and there's gonna be transparent rules and processes. Um, and this DAO exists to mobilize everyone's talents and ideas. So anyone can come in and say like, I have an idea, let's mobilize around it. Let's form a squad, let's go on a quest. Let's try to influence a corporation in this way. Let's try to hold them accountable in this way. Um, the DAO can uh, have the decentralized community direct money direct to, to projects from its digital wallet because uh, crypto tokens do play, play a role in this. It can replicate virally across college campuses all over the world, and it can coordinate mass numbers of, pe of people to influence people who have, who have power and to create culture, a different culture of sustainability, one that really wants to res uh, will result or lead to a livable world. Uh, and I know I have a couple of minutes, so I thought I'd just uh, be finishing up, uh, Ben. So, so I'm gonna introduce this concept of solar punk, which some of you may have heard of before and you're like, whoa, Diego, why are you talking about solar punk? But this is a um, financial, uh, sustainable finance uh, summit. Like, you know, this is kind of like a button down field. Um, and, and the reason is because I think we need to explore new concepts around what we're trying to do here. And sustainability as a concept has been around for 40 or 50 years and is, it has not succeeded. If you if you uh, listen to what the UN had to say uh, in its report card with the SDGs, uh, we're not on track to meet them. And so what are some other concepts that we can bring in? And to me, the solar punk message is, punk means, means that the status quo needs to change. Punk means that you're not satisfied with the static status quo. Um, and so the world needs you to shift it. By you, I mean the attendees at this conference. And solar, is basically that we can use the newest technology. We can use everyone's imagination, everyone's creativity, everyone's talent to succeed in creating a livable world, not to make progress, not to do our best, not to do good, but to actually succeed in creating a livable world. So if you're a solar punk, it means that's your goal and you wanna mobilize everyone's talents, everyone's cultural assets, everyone's creativity, everyone's imagination and all technology to make that happen. And if you're punk, you realize that you're gonna do that to shift the current status quo because it's not producing what we need for it to produce. So um, so it's it's a concept that I think has a, has a, a big role to play in, in how, how we get to where we're going and one that we're really adopting at Poise Staff. So these are some of the things that we're doing. Um, and so we're creating an organization that will help you see things so that you can't unsee them. 
so that you see what really needs to change in the world, what can change and how it can change. And yes, hold these dominant institutions and particularly financial institutions accountable and help them to understand how they can participate in this great transition so that we get to uh, where we need to go. So, um, so that's a little bit about like what I think this week is all about. Um, the dialogues, the transparent and honest and empathetic dialogues that we can have with people, these people who are coming who are in positions of power. And I'm, I'm hoping that their curiosity is awakened and, and their willingness to talk to you all because you're the future is awakened and that we're really gonna have some great conversations and, um, and, and explore some really interesting stuff in a way that financial industry conferences typically do not so that we stand out as being different. Um, and with that, Ben, I'll, I'll uh, hand it back to you. Amazing, thank you so much, Diego, for such a thought-provoking keynote speech and a great kind of entry into the discussions that we're gonna be having over the week. So um, for the people viewing now, we're going to be starting a workshop, an ESG workshop, which will give you kind of a practical insight into a lot of the concept that we've just spoken about in this um, keynote. So um, what I'm gonna do currently is I'm just going to, for everyone in the chat, I'm also just gonna put the Zoom link for the workshop. So hopefully everyone has just received that. You can also find the link on your emails. So the email that was sent up if you've signed up through the um, through the registration over the last kind of week. So if you want to kind of use that link now, leave this um, keynote and me and Diego will be on the other side in the next few minutes to start the workshop. So thank you very much everyone for coming for the keynote and please join us for the workshop. Thanks Ben.